0: Welcome to Insights, production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is understanding the global dynamics of e-commerce and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Tim Woodhouse, Portfolio Manager on the Global Equities Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. With me today is Penny Tu, Product Analyst for our Greater China Equities Team, Emerging Market and Asia-Pacific Equities Team, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And also Joe Wilson, Research Analyst and Portfolio Manager, U.S. Equity Group, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Glad to be here.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: These are fast-changing companies in fast-changing industries, and for any investor focused on the space, I think that presents a number of challenges. So Penny, perhaps you could begin by talking about what do you feel are the most important things to look at when analyzing these companies? How do you predict who will be relevant in these industries in 5 and 10, even 20 years?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of technologies are really rapidly evolving. And if we look at these technology or big internet companies in China, most of them actually didn't exist 15 years ago. So I think at this point in time, I will look at which player has built a good user base because the overall internet user is slowing. So it's important to have a monetizable user base and then build from here. And then also I'll look at what kind of ecosystem the companies have built. Have they built enough you know, competitive mode around themselves? I think going forward, these so far, we look at the top three internet companies in China, namely Alibaba, Tencent and Baidu. These should be the relevant players over the next five years at least.
2: I would say, for me, one of the most important aspects for a company is just their level of innovation and ability to really meet consumers where they are. So we've seen this generation of people move to online commerce, and it's gone from PC to mobile in a pretty rapid fashion. And the ones who were were meeting consumers on mobile have really taken line share. And then I think now, looking forward, is to see where these companies are innovating even further, right? We kind of have this hybrid approach where consumers are on mobile devices, they're going into stores, and you kind of have to be everywhere all at one time. And so the innovation aspect within any of these large companies is a key differentiator. I think that's what keeps them in a leadership position.
0: There are clearly many parallels that could be drawn between the U.S. companies and their Chinese counterparts, How much do each of you look at what's happening on the other side of the world? What can you learn from the respective likes of Amazon or Alibaba? And what can you learn from your colleagues in other regions around the world? I think there's a lot to be learned, right?
2: People were very surprised when Amazon announced that they were going to acquire Whole Foods. But if you looked overseas and to see, and Penny knows this firsthand, what Alibaba is doing in China is they've been investing in grocery for, I think, almost two years and have kind of like this future of grocery retail already available for consumers to walk into. So, I think it's vitally important on top of the fact that barriers come down when you're online versus brick and mortar. Amazon can enter in any market mostly, as can Baba outside of any government restrictions. And I think that's the most important thing to realize is that this is now a global economy and the large e-commerce companies in the United States, in China, in Europe, etc., they're trying to get as much mind share and market share as possible.
1: I agree with Joe. I think if we compare, you know, China versus US, there are some areas where China has leapfrog US in being more receptive or embracing the internet services. Examples include e-commerce penetration. China is already higher than the US. Mobile payment penetration is also higher. But on the other hand, there's a lot that China is still trying to catch up on many other aspects like cloud adoption and how do we monetize social or other internet services. So I think it's really important for us who look at China market to also analyze the leading internet giants in the West to learn a lot from their experiences.
2: One other thing to add to that too is that it's simplified for me just to say that these markets are available to anybody overseas, but each one is unique, right? A Chinese consumer is different from a Brazilian consumer, which is different from an American consumer. And so you have to look at the strategies for each of these companies in terms of how they're addressing that consumer need. For example, Mercado Libre in Latin America had seen a lot of success in terms of being able to sell online but deliver in person. And there was that factor of trust. And that's something that we haven't really seen with a lot of the American models. So for them to just take what we're doing here and port it to Brazil or Argentina it might not be successful unless they're really going at that market for a very long time. There's a lot of strategy to learn as well, too, from all of the players.
0: I think that's very fair. I'd, I'd add that as a portfolio manager investing globally, we do feel it's vitally important that we have those local insights. So the benefit to us is that because research is just at the core of everything we do, being able to speak to both of you in different regions and really utilize those insights is hugely important. That's especially true in a dynamic space like e-commerce, an environment that's this competitive we need to understand what the future will look like. And really, that's key. So we've seen really phenomenal growth over the past few years from many of these companies. And Penny, you mentioned how penetration of e-commerce in China is higher than the US. And it's actually almost double. In the US, it will pass $350 billion in e-commerce sales this year, which represents close to 10% of overall retail sales. But that number in China is double. It's closer to 20%. When you guys think about those numbers, what does that say to you about how early in the adoption we are and what the runway really is for these companies going forward? Joe, does that suggest that for the likes of Amazon, we're still in the early innings of the opportunity?
2: Yeah, I believe it is. You know, I think that on the consumer side, we're seeing the larger online e-commerce vendors play a bigger and more important role in our lives and volume picks up as they make things easier and more available and faster. And then you have, you know, Amazon does an acquisition like Whole Foods, which is kind of mixing this hybrid approach of bricks and mortars with online. And to say that Amazon's going to stop there would be very short-sighted. I I think the longer-term view is that this is going to persist into other markets, whether it's a bigger effort in apparel or electronics, maybe auto. And so I really believe that there is a much larger impact there. I'd also say, too, that for a small and medium-sized business, you know, which is maybe a brick and mortar today or an online, the tools that are becoming available to them are much better as well, too. So, a company like Shopify, for example, which allows a person to start a company in a matter of hours and instantly be selling online and being able to advertise and accept goods and track inventory and do that across a brick and mortar and online is a very valuable thing. And so... The friction to be able to sell and serve a consumer in the U.S. is becoming easier with infrastructure companies like that as well. So I think this is still very early innings, and we're going to see this reach a much higher penetration rate over the long term.
0: And Penny, e-commerce sales in China will be probably over one trillion U.S. dollars in 2017. Would you agree that we remain in the earlier stages of adoption there, too?
1: Yeah, I think if you look at, purely look at the growth rate, the growth may slow from prior years, but I think that because online or mobile life has become a more critical part of Chinese consumers' everyday life, the online e-commerce is expected to continue to thrive. And I think right now the online e-commerce concept is not just about physical goods, it also increasing online service sales. So, Also, what Alibaba and Jingdong, the leading e-commerce players are doing in China is they're trying to also convert the offline sales to online by enabling offline retailers or enhancing their efficiency. They're talking about omni channel or the enabling of their offline partners. So if you look at the online penetration, it's like 15%, 16% in 2016. But the other 84 or 85% so-called offline retail sales right now is what these leading players are looking at. I think there remains a long runway for these leading players to grow in the next
0: few years. You mentioned JD. I mean, it's an important point that The global e-commerce market is not defined simply by Amazon and Alibaba, although sometimes it feels like people think it is. You both cover a range of really interesting companies involved in this space. And Joe, you mentioned Shopify. And it ranges from direct competitors like JD and Barbar in China to those enabling transactions, whether it's payments or all of the other things that go into working really the e-commerce economy function. So when you guys look at the broader landscape beyond the two major players' Are there one or two companies that strike you as being particularly well-positioned, that are doing something particularly innovative?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like I mentioned, Shopify, for example, which is this fantastic enablement platform for a small and medium-sized business. And they've really focused on providing a great software approach to make this really easy to manage. And it's been so successful now they're starting to see adoption in larger enterprises as well. But if you think about it, if you're a a hat salesperson or have a company that sells hats, for example, Amazon might be a really attractive outlet for you, but that might just be one of a few others, right? Maybe you want to sell through Walmart online or you want to sell through eBay or Facebook. And so still having the ability to manage that through one point versus multiple different systems is a really powerful thing. And so I think they've done a great Job of developing kind of a almost a backdoor into capturing this really big opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think the leading China e-commerce players right now, including Alibaba and JD, they essentially have identified the consumers' needs and identified the pain points for consumers. So, for example, a few years back, one of the key growth drivers for China e-commerce is because the retail infrastructure offline is really on their a lack of quality retail infrastructure offline so when Taobao comes up and all of a sudden a wide range of products are at your fingertips so this is why you know it has to drive quickly it's also related to the poor user experience where when you go to a retail shop the experience is not entirely fantastic and also some of the offerings in the offline retail stores are not very satisfactory. And so JD comes up with their own in-house logistics that provides superior user experience very quick delivery and authentic products. So these companies' success are really not by chance and they have seized this opportunity. And I think as they continue to grow, there are also interesting smaller companies that grow along with their ecosystem. So for example, um, there's also a listed company called Baozun. This is an online operator for brands to operate their storefront on Taobao or Timo or their official websites. So this one is also seeing pretty good growth, benefiting from the overall e-commerce growth. And there's also, you know, one of the online insurance companies come to IPO recently, it's called and They have invented uh, shipping insurance products out of the Taobao ecosystem because shipping return is one of the pain points for consumers previously. They don't want to bear the additional cost. So by paying a very small amount of, for example, like RMB 10, 10 RMB, you can get a shipping insurance and that could cover your potential shipping return costs. So there are many examples like this. And I think this has grown into a very big ecosystem in China.
0: And it's a really important point that you made around fulfillment because you've seen a bit of a divergence, I think, at least from the starting point in how companies approach the idea of logistics and owning their fulfillment versus a more assets light model. And as you say, especially in China, where the underlying infrastructure before the likes of JD really focused on controlling it was not that fantastic. Do you think there is a place for an asset light model going forwards? Or really, in a country like China, is owning the fulfillment really the competitive advantage that you need in order to be successful?
1: Yeah, I think in China right now, we already see very two distinct models. One is Alibaba, which is purely adopts a platform strategy, it's all third-party marketplace model. They don't own any inventory, they don't own any trucks or delivery staffs, so even their fulfillment services, they built a network called Cai Niao, Logistic Network, which is sort of an alliance for different express delivery companies or different participants in the logistics supply chain. So this is one end of the spectrum, so a pure platform model. I think the reason why Alibaba has chosen a platform strategy is purely because of its scale. So at its scale, is unreasonable or unviable. For it to build a self-owned logistics network. So by leveraging other so-called social resources, it could support and scale more effectively. Whereas the other end, we saw JD, they have their own in-house logistics facilities, which remain one of their key competitive advantage to differentiate themselves from Alibaba. Because still to date, JD's logistics service quality is still more superior than so-called the other partners, logistics partners of Alibaba in terms of speed, in terms of the overall service quality. I think the market itself is big enough for both models to thrive because right now I think consumers go to different platforms for different purposes. If you look at the design of their mobile app or their shop interface, Alibaba is very diverse, you can do all sorts of things on their mobile app on Taobao. You can watch short video, you can just buy or browse a lot of stuff, ask questions or interact with key opinion leaders or influencers. Whereas in JD, because they have a retailer's DNA, which is closer to Amazon, so their interface is neater and it's more, it's probably easier to find stuff on JD because the product listing on Alibaba is just billions. So I think they both cater to a good amount of consumers. And I think because the overall e-commerce is growing, especially we talk about they're trying to convert the offline sales to online by doing better cooperation with the offline retailers and brands. I think there's still enough runway for both companies to thrive in China.
2: I think Penny brings up a great point in terms of the differences between the ownerships models of the infrastructure between JD and BABA, but I think both of them similarly have a tight control, right? I mean, JD might own the assets, obviously they have a tight control, but BABA, through equity interest, has an ability to control build and quality to a certain extent. And I think that's vitally important to them. I think in the US, Amazon chose the route to to, uh, spend CapEx and build their facilities themselves because they didn't have that option starting out at an earlier stage to get somebody else to do it for them. And I think the most important aspect of whether you're gonna build it and own it is that you control it. And so to have that equity interest in the entity and or be able to have the direction to be able to say, I need a warehouse here and or I need cross docking facilities there is extremely important. And we're seeing Mercado Libre in Latin America, which has always been a very asset light model because they see what's coming, which is eventually they're gonna be competing with Alibaba and or Amazon and some of the larger players is that they need to improve their fulfillment capabilities. And so they're still asset light, but they're creating these partnerships and taking these equity investments in companies that are more capable of providing, you know, that two day delivery. Eventually we're gonna be down to 30 second delivery and none of this will matter. It'll all be kind of commoditized, but until then that's a long ways away. It is definitely an area that you can build up the barriers to entry. One
0: thing, when these companies have been such phenomenal performers, right now it feels like nothing can go wrong. But of course, there's always something that can go wrong. So when you guys think about the threats to these guys going forward, what really keeps you awake at night? Is it regulation? Is it competition? What should professional investors really be focused on to ensure that they don't get tripped up down the line? I believe kind of all of the
2: above you know as an investor especially as a technology investor i'm worried about everything all the time (laughs) and i think that's really important is that these companies have to be somewhat humble and realize that there's always somebody smaller more nimble maybe taking a longer term view or that can capture kind of that lightning in a bottle to disrupt their business model so Again, it goes back to the fact that if these larger companies can remain innovative, even at a large scale, and or identify other areas for innovation, you know, that's a key factor. The other one for me is regulation, is that as they enter into all these different markets and obtain the fulfillment and enter into grocery and enter into electronics or apparel and all these different markets, there is that risk that government regulation could step in. I would say that the offset to that though is that as a consumer it doesn't seem yet to be making our lives any worse if not you know easier uh, more complicated but obviously that can be debated on the social aspect of whether it's easier or not but right now pricing on goods continues to be pretty attractive via these larger online
0: players as well and we have seen with Google that the EC tends to form their own definition of uh, I think so what might be harming consumers versus helping them. Exactly. Penny, how about in China? I think for international investors who don't know China as well as you do, there often is a perception that the regulatory environment really is very hard to predict. Would you pinpoint that as being the thing you worry about most or is there something else?
1: I think uh, similar to what Joe mentioned, there are really a lot of things to worry about, although some of them could be less imminent. I think one is, for example, the tech disruption that continues to happen. We talked about, you know, these so-called Internet giants today didn't exist like 15, 20 years ago. So everyone is also talking about mobile moving to artificial intelligence age, are these existing incumbents ready to make that move if the shift happens faster? So for example, if the consumers shift away from interacting with their mobile to other AI-enabled device, are they able to maintain the gateway under this new era? Um, and then secondly, as you mentioned, the regulations and environment. So there are several things specifically to e-commerce. For example, right now the C2C, consumer-to-consumer e-commerce is not taxed. And, you know, there has been talks about for many years that government is trying to collect tax from um, C2C e-commerce because this is, appears, you know, a growing part of the economy. But right now that hasn't happened. And um, there's no really visibility on when would that happen or would it, ever happen because this affects everyone in the ecosystem a lot. But this remains a risk. And then also related to regulations, in a way, these China Internet companies are somewhat protected by the China government. So if you look at Tencent's WeChat because Facebook is not allowed to comment to China and Baidu's search thrives because we don't have Google in China. And Amazon doesn't really um, have a big operation in China either. So will China government's attitude towards foreign investment change in the future? That may have significant implication to the competitive landscape as well. And I think thirdly is because these companies tend to have strong cash flow generation and they have a lot of cash. Of course, the track record suggests... They have been quite rational in putting their money at work, investing in the new areas where the innovation should happen. There's always capital allocation risk around these areas. One example is, you know, Baba bought a football club in the past, although they tried to rationalize it as a part of their entertainment offering. But I think investors' perception is still these are not really relevant to the core of what they do.
0: Yeah, I don't think we'd argue strongly that buying a football club adds a lot of value for shareholders. (laughs) E-commerce, it's a very in vogue discussion right now, but I suggest that perhaps there's a topic for which the crescendo is even higher, and that's artificial intelligence. What's not in e-commerce is one example of the power of AI that was highlighted to me in a meeting I had a few months ago with a man named Sebastian Thrun, who's the founder of Google X and of their self-driving car program. So in his work at Stanford, he worked on an AI algorithm that could diagnose skin cancer, where the performance was tested for accuracy, but also against 21 dermatologists. And in its first iteration, that algorithm matched the performance of the dermatologists. Now, in the healthcare world, just imagine if we're worried about a skin lesion, we can simply take a picture on our smartphone and get a preliminary diagnosis. And especially in something like a melanoma, where the five-year survival rate is very different if detected early to if caught later. That's an incredible example of how AI can make a real difference in the real world. Now, the applications of AI and machine learning extend far beyond healthcare. So perhaps, Joe, could you start just by talking about what you really believe AI and machine learning can do for for e-commerce companies over the course of the next decade? Some of the best
2: examples of AI today are seen in the Amazon Echo device with Alexa or the Google Home device with the Google Assistant because the natural language processing and the capabilities to understand how we speak have improved so far that it just makes it that much better of an experience. And it's that experience. It's, it's the ability to understand my four-year-old son or someone that has a different dialect than I with the same efficacy that drives people to want to use these devices. And if we're in a world where everything is going through voice because AI is so good, think of how disruptive that could be to e-commerce, right? If I'm just saying to my Amazon Echo device, order me a pair of Nike shoes, it's able to maybe understand me, understand my last shopping habits, understand maybe a picture that I've uploaded to the Amazon Cloud. Or Google Cloud, and it's able to understand exactly my style and provide me a shoe in the mail within 30 seconds, if that's when it happens, (laughs) that it knows that I will like. And to the same extent, I think that the stuff that we're seeing right now with AI, and it's still so early, and this has all been enabled by kind of this newer parallel compute market, is fascinating. And right now we're seeing like Facebook is using this for the visually impaired, to be able to describe a picture that's on your Facebook newsfeed and it might be a picture of me on the beach with my family and it'll say, as one of my, somebody that's in my friend network, if it comes up with their newsfeed, it's Joe Wilson and two others on a beach, sunny ocean in the back, blue skies. And it's very simple. But what if it understands that maybe I have a polo shirt on so that now it can identify the brand, it can identify the logo, and it could understand that I'm your perfect target market for a polo shirt. And I think that's the power of AI, is just being able to target and understand each of us much better. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, and I truly believe that. if you looked through a photo album of myself, you'd probably have a really good understanding of who I am and what I'm about in a short period of time. And I think that's where we're gonna be seeing this disruption occur.
0: And Penny, the major players in China have been vocal about their efforts in AI. How do you see it changing the landscape there?
1: Yeah, I'm also a believer that AI is going to change every part of our lives in many years ahead. If we look at what the companies in China they've been doing is, um, Baidu has been very vocal about their initiatives on autonomous driving. And there are many different ventures working on language recognition and even how the AI can help on. Education or even art creation. So I think right now a lot of things are really happening. And if we look at these internet companies, AI is already helping them in what they have been doing. So Alibaba's, as an example, they talk about, you know, the AI or machine learning has really helped them to improve their targeting and recommendation. So in the past, the so-called recommendation is pretty straightforward. If you search for a shirt, then when you log in next time, they will continue to push shirt related advertising to you. But right now they may try to push some accessories if you're a girl, so the accessories or shoes or bags that goes well with that shirt. So this really enhances the user experience and as well improve their um, conversion rate. And similarly for Tencent, they're talking about better ad targeting because they get to know more about their consumers And with the algorithm or big data computing power, increasing computing power, they are able to test a lot of the algorithm which continues to improve. And this is really also behind the strong growth of Alibaba's advertising revenue in the past few quarters. So I think it's already been showing some benefits to the existing players, but I think the impact for the overall population or the whole world, it will be very profound in the next few years.
0: And I couldn't agree more. I think we've seen so many of the benefits of what AI and machine learning can bring already. But the final topic I wanted to bring up is is almost an offset to that, and it's data privacy. And to Joe, to your point about an algorithm looking through your photos and seeing you're wearing a polo shirt and you're on the beach and suggesting products and allowing advertisers to suggest products based on all of that information, do you think that there is ever going to be a breaking point where we as consumers turn around and say, enough is enough? Apple, as an example, has made a point of focusing on privacy and keeping individual data secure. So do we ever reach that tipping point, or is actually AI and machine learning going to mean that privacy is a thing of the past?
2: I'd say it's kind of... Is slow acceptance, right? It feels like if you would have told somebody 10 years ago that they're going to be posting 15 pictures of themselves publicly online on three different apps on their mobile phone, I think they would have probably laughed at you. That just wouldn't have been, you know, a thing. And, and right now we're seeing the number of times that a millennial opens up Snapchat and is recording a video or uh, taking a picture is exponentially higher. And so I think that It's somewhat generational, but it's also the aspect that if I give up a little bit of my data, what do I get in return, right? So let's take the advertising example. And if I knowingly post all my pictures to Google Photos and or Facebook, and I know that they're looking through them and scanning them and trying to identify who I am and what I like and what I represent, the benefit to that might be that they have a more effective advertising component. and maybe. I don't have to sit through 10 minutes of commercials during a 30-minute television show. Maybe I only have to watch one 20-second commercial. Now, that's me. Like, that's my hope, right? Okay. Nobody really wants to sit through that. But that's the opportunity is to have this become much more effective and provide some benefit as well to our life. You know, that's just one example. But I could think of, you know, five, six, seven others, and I'm sure the people at Google, Amazon. Alibaba could think of a thousand different benefits or ways that they can get people to want to share more information. You know, I think it's important to realize that we talk about the previous question, which is artificial intelligence and this new deep learning model. That's a technology and it's an infrastructure. You know, that's kind of the rocket ship, but a rocket ship doesn't go anywhere if it doesn't have fuel. And that's really. What the data is and all these large companies and even small companies realize that. And that's why, while they might not be able to make it as useful right now, they're all starting to really focus on their data strategy to be able to capture as much information as possible right now.
1: Right, I agree. I think in terms of the data privacy in China, I would say one is, you know, people have actually different acceptance level for different privacy. So users are still very sensitive about financial related services. So if there's any like scandals or news about some financial platforms, they have data leakage to external parties, etc. Then the users usually will get quite nervous. But then, as Joe mentioned, you know, there is really less harm for consumers if you kind of share or let the e-commerce or advertising or social sites know more about you which may also improve your life quality when you turn on the news feed you can see the topics that you are more interested in etc and i think also the big internet companies in china they talk about you know the use of data is really more on an aggregate basis so they don't need to kind of know exactly who this individual are or your like id or whatever they need a profile of a group of consumers with common characteristics. So, for example, your gender, your age, and your interest group. So, if you have expressed interest In a certain category, they may put you together. So I think there is still a very strict line about your data protection. When you talk to Alibaba and the investor, they also spend a lot of time talking about data privacy, how they protect data while trying to make use of the data to improve user experience and their own monetization. And in terms of data, I think it's definitely become a new electricity for the AI era. And the reason why I think the current so-called internet giants could remain quite relevant at least in the next three to five years, because they have a big ecosystem of different internet properties that allow them to collect data from different touch points of consumers. So for example, Alibaba, they have built a very strong e-commerce and they now have trying to start to monetize their online financial services. And they also have cloud and logistics and et cetera. So these really are parallel touch points or data. So while the smaller companies, they can try to catch up maybe in more niche category. But eventually, I think if you look at the big internet giants, they may still have a very big advantage over the other smaller players in terms of data reserves.
0: This has been a fascinating conversation about a landscape that's really only going to grow in importance in the future. So whether you're an investor in emerging markets in the U.S. or globally, there are fantastic opportunities for investors to take advantage of. And that's important, not just in identifying the winners, but also the losers, as the likes of Amazon and Alibaba take a greater share of wallet. There are companies that will eventually cease to exist. And so as a portfolio manager who's trying to identify the companies to invest in, but also the companies to avoid... We need smart analysts, two of whom you've heard from today, and I'm fortunate to be able to count on their insights every single day. And I think that really brings us to the core of what active management has to offer. We can identify these trends, and we can make money for our clients by utilizing the insights of the analysts that you've heard today. Thank you for joining us on Insights. Great, thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. If you have any feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website. Recorded on September 22nd, 2017. The company and stock names mentioned in this podcast are not to be interpreted as a recommendation to buy or sell. The use of the above companies is in no way an endorsement for J.P. Morgan Asset Management Investment Management Services.
3: The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Europe, S.A.R.L. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management, Limited, Or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co reg number 197601586K, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co reg number 201120355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firm's Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, No. 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited. ABN Five Five One Four Three Eight Three Two Zero Eight Zero. AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan SA, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA SIPC and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.